and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney. My name's Alistair. And I'm Jed. And every fortnight, uh, one of us tells the other a story from Sydney's rich and illustrious history. Last fortnight, Jed, it was me on the line telling the story. Do you happen to recall what it was about? Definitely. We were deep underground in Sydney's cavernous uh, sewer system. We were, yeah. It was kind of a roller coaster ride through the entire history of sewage in Sydney. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mostly the beginning, which was the bit um, that's probably more interesting, except for the water engineers out there who were probably extremely disappointed that we focused almost exclusively on the early days. Yeah, yeah. It got a bit out of hand at the end and we lost track of the details, but there's also a lot, lot more to talk about these days. So just leave that for the engineers. It's a history podcast, not an engineering podcast. <laughs> Exactly. At the time, you gave me a clue and I was wildly off with my guess about what we would be talking about today. I've been thinking about it since. I still am pretty certain I have no idea what it's going to be about. But would you be able to just kind of drop that clue again? I do. I'll run through the clue uh, once more. My clue was that this episode will be a story of a true colonial Sydney dynasty. The Scottish patriarch of the family came out to Sydney as colonial secretary and his family played a most important role in the intellectual development and governance of New South Wales throughout the 19th century. Their legacy lives on through two particularly significant and very different contributions to Sydney, although as of 2020, neither of these holds their family name. All right, I have a new guess. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. I, I don't know anything about uh, this family or people or anything, but uh, it could be something to do with media, potentially, especially because you mentioned intellectual. So mm-hmm. I don't know anything about the Fairfax family, but they were bought out by Nine recently. No, yeah, Nine, Ten. I don't know. One of the big <laughs> channels. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so the name of that company is, I think, no longer Fairfax. Um, I like it. I like it. That's what. I, but I don't know anything about them being Scottish. I think I was wait. The Wentworths. I don't think were Scottish. They have loads of stuff named after them. There was lots wrong with that guess. <laughs> Both good guesses, and I mean, I guess I'm quite forgiving with what I think constitutes a good guess. I think they're both good guesses because they're like potentially plausible guesses that you made. Yeah, that you could make a story about. Yeah, but neither of them are correct. Oh, okay. So you'll have to. I'll get stuck into the story, and you can feel free to jump in if you manage to figure out who the family is before I uh, out them. I think it's highly unlikely. I, I I don't know who it is, but I'm looking forward to it. That's great. Excellent. And so before I begin this week's episode, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which I record this podcast, which is the Wiradjuri people. And for me, it's the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And also the traditional custodians of the land on which this week's history takes place, which is actually a lot of different people. Um, So rather than acknowledging them specifically, I'd just like to, uh, I guess, draw attention to the massive negative impact colonisation had on Indigenous people in Australia and more broadly across the world, because it does sort of come into this story a lot, that relationship. And so let's get stuck into it. All right. It's a bit of a global story here. A bit of a global story. So (laughs) right up your alley then. (laughs) Where do we start? We start start with a Swedish man called Carl Linnaeus. Excuse my probably wrong pronunciation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think a biology guy, right? A biology guy, yeah. Mm -hmm. So he had two major contributions to biology. The first was this idea of categorizing everything on Earth into animal, vegetable, or mineral, which is sort of the beginning of our ideas around taxonomy. And also a fun parlor game. (laughs) Indeed. We used to play that as children all the time. (laughs) Road trip game. Yeah. So did we. And the other thing he came up with was the idea of binomial Latin names for species. Because prior to that point, everyone just gave everything common names. And it was quite difficult for um, biologists to determine if they were talking about the same species. Right. Still is a confusing thing. (laughs) Cedar. I've spent so long trying to figure out what cedar is because there's loads of stuff that's called cedar. Well, stick to the Latin. Yeah. It's all there. So, Carlinez died in 1778, and his vast collection of specimens, which was possibly one of the best in the world, went up for auction. And a another interested gentleman called Sir James Smith, he snapped up the whole lot on Sir Joseph Banks's advice oh, yeah. for a thousand guineas. Uh, sounds probably a lot. I, I know that Joseph Banks was a wealthy, wealthy man. <laughs> So, so he just told his friends to drop money the way he did. So a guinea is a funny thing. It's, it's obviously a, a British unit of currency from the time, and it was equal to one pound and one shilling. 
why would you need that? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it's a, it's, it was about 10 to 20 years of a tradesman's wages. So it was quite a bit of money on, his, on the specimens. Yeah, wow. Um, and so at that point in time, some collectors actually thought that Linnaeus had described all living things. Which he obviously had. <laughs> Quite ambitious. Mm. The bold claim. It's like the people who said that like, they'd invented... There were people claiming that all the things that could ever be invented would be invented... In, had already been invented in, I think, like the late 1800s. Yeah. You can see how you'd feel that way. but Yeah, I'm starting to feel that way. <laughs> you end up looking like a <laughs> fool. Oh. <laughs> and then in 1788, James Smith founded the Linnaean Society which mm-hmm. I believe still exists to this day, which is dedicated to scientific publication. It was in uh, England, and he put himself as the president, and it very quickly became a very high-profile society. Banks joined and various other important natural history figures in London at the time. Okay. And one person who would join the society in 1794, and uh, now we're into the story of the family in question, yeah. was Alexander Maclay. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a famous Sydney name, but I, I don't know anything about the Macleays. Well, you might as we progress. He was born in 1767 in Scotland and was in his 20s was a wine merchant in London. He married Eliza and they had their first son, William Sharp, in 1792. And then their first daughter, Frances Lenora, who went by Fanny the next year. And then another 15 children in the coming two decades. <laughs> no need to list them all. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so, like I said, he joined the Linnaean Society in 1794. He was interested in entomology. Okay. Study of bugs. Yeah, nice. And this was a great networking connection for him because it was full of important gentlemen. So the next year he got offered a coveted public service gig as chief clerk of the prisoner of war office. Okay. This is during the Napoleonic Wars, I take it? Probably quite a lot of prisoners of war. I have no idea, but sure, if you say so. <laughs> With a tidy new public service income, he set about uh, vastly expanding his collection of specimens, which prior to this point was just his from his own bug catching trips. Yeah, but once he got stuck into the auctions that um, started to abound at this point in time in London, he uh, really grew his collection. Right. But he wasn't one for the academic side of entomology or lepidopterology. I don't know what that is. Butterflies. Oh, he's just, but he's so he's more of like the gentleman kind of collective for prestige thing that like you got to yes. things to show off. Yes, his whole career and life, he actually never publishes a paper, but yeah. he is constantly um, receives gushing acknowledgements <laughs> from others in the sort of acknowledgement section of their papers. Classic, yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> you know the guy. I, I know the type. <laughs> so his first significant connection to the natural history of Australia came about in 1805 when he received a large collection of specimens from Australia, which had been collected by John Lewin. Okay. This, at this point, he's still in London. Just yes. living it up. Mm-hmm. Working as a clerk of the prisoner of war office yeah. and having children. <laughs> Lots of children. Those are his main occupations. <laughs> Bugs, having children, and getting a healthy salary from the state. So John Lewin, who is the man he acquired his uh, first Australian collection from, was the first free-settling colonial artist in New South Wales. Okay. And he's most well-known by me, at any rate, for his watercolours of the landscapes uh, along the Cox's Road between Emu Plains and Bathurst because he went with Macquarie on the first official tour of that area. Okay. So his watercolours are like the best insight we have into what Bathurst looked like before settlement. Right, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I guess like, the written accounts, as you've mentioned in the previous episode about the... Uh... <laughs> gushing, positively gushing. Positively gushing, but very unclear exa- exactly what it looked like. Mm. The next year, 1806, Alexander got promoted to Secretary of the Transport Board and he was on £1,000 a year, which, as I said, is about 10 to 15 times the average tradie wage. Nice. Which seems like a lot, but when he was dropping the amount of money he was on (laughs) specimens, it certainly wasn't. At one auction, he dropped £15, which was about a week's of his salary, uh, on two stick insects. Wow. Yeah, this I didn't know that there was such a rampant market in a, in insects at the time. Yeah, and it, it really appeared out of nowhere. There was like no auction houses and then boom, it was the, like the in thing. You know, the Linnaean Society got founded, auction houses spring up. It's huge business. Wow. Uh, so his, his eldest child, William, followed in his interest in natural history. He used to go on collecting trips with him um, when they're at their house in Surrey. 
and William went to Cambridge as an undergraduate. And at Christmas 1814, so William was back from Cambridge on um, uni holidays or whatever, naturalist Robert Brown, who had been on one of um, Matthew Flinders' exploratory expeditions around Australia uh-huh. and was a friend of Joseph Banks, went to stay at the Maclay's country home for Christmas. Yeah. yeah. And Alexander and Robert Brown were friends, Maclay being a signatory to Brown's application for membership to the Royal Society. Oh, yeah. These are... Were- High flyers. They were. They were. Yeah. And Alexander had also gone to some lengths to actively discourage other people from publishing on Australian plants to limit the competition to Brown's work. Nice. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> Hence all the acknowledgements he got. It's all an inside job. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so William was visiting from Cambridge, the son, and he was thrilled to have a chance to have a conversation with such a renowned botanist. Yeah. But it was his younger sister, Fanny, that seemed to catch Brown's attention. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in this. I take it this is romantic attention, not sadly not because she's going to become the focus of this story as a renowned biologist. Well, you're partly well, right. Okay, so good. she was. I want to hear seen, more more about Fanny. She was seen as a bright and intelligent young person in her early twenties, but obviously was denied the access to scholarship that William enjoyed. Yeah, being ex- instead expected to help her mother Eliza raise her fifteen siblings. There's a lot of them. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but she did find time to help out her father with managing his collection. And she actually was sort of responsible for facilitating trading okay. and his correspondence with the various people that he traded specimens with. So she did have, you know, yeah, she cool. was definitely involved in that side of things and had a strong interest in natural history. To their credit, her parents fostered her interest in drawing and sketching. Okay. Um, and so there is actually some of her work still exists to this day of, of sketches she did of flowers and stuff and some watercolor paintings and that sort yeah. of thing. Cool. Yeah. So, but, but also it seems from some remaining correspondence that a romance did blossom between Fanny and Robert Brown that Christmas Yeah. and rumor of a possible engagement, although no yeah. marriage eventuated. And later in life, Fanny would mention, mysteriously mention, the one man she might have married but could not have. Mm, could have been him. Well, it's it's not clear what she's talking about, but I suspect that the reason she couldn't marry Brown was because he spent over a year accompanying Matthew Flinders around the coast of Australia. Flinders, who famously wrote love notes to George Bass. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that he might not have been interested. In well, I think he might have taken a very strong interest to Fanny. <laughs> At the Christmas dinner, but not a romantic interest. Misunderstood. <laughs> you might yeah, have thought she was fabulous. Really interesting and knew a lot about the bugs that her dad collected. Yeah. Well, and they, they stayed good close friends sending each other letters about natural history nice, for okay. decades to come. But it, I mean, it does seem like just just because there's a like strong uh, suggestion that Flinders was gay doesn't mean that everyone on his boat was gay and it was like an enormous gay party. <laughs> <laughs> They're not just like rocking through the seas. <laughs> it's just a theory. No one could say. Unknown to history exactly why she couldn't marry him. Yeah. So in 1817, a couple of years later, Alexander Maclay had the honor of having a swallow-tailed butterfly species named for him, which is Papillo Maclayanus. And I take it that's still the case, right? Those things don't change. Sometimes they change genus, but the species name tends to stay locked in. Right, nice. So that same year, the transport board dissolved. And I'm not actually sure of the connotations around that. I didn't investigate that, but it does sound interesting. (laughs) Hang on, I'm so lost in all of this story. Is This is the transport board in, in Britain? Yes, we're still in Britain. Gee, this is, this is getting to be almost Alistair levels of uh, not getting to the Sydney part. <laughs> well, I'm trying to move it on. <laughs> trying to get through it all. So, Maclay was made redundant oh, at no. age 50. His luck's run out. Yeah, which was, well, it was great news because he had more time for collecting. <laughs> and he didn't let not having such an a income. thing as not having a reliable income stop him from continuing to buy at auctions. Yeah. At that point, he got the bug. <laughs> So his son, William, returned from France. Um, where Did I mention that he was in France? Not that I know of. But uh, to be honest, there's 15 of them. I've lost track of anything that's going on with them. He, he's the one who went to Cambridge? Yes. So William uh, finished at Cambridge, his undergraduate degree, and went to France to uh, mix with the natural scientists of Europe of the day. And he had a signed uh, letter of introduction from Sir James Smith, who was the president of the Linnaean Society in London. So he basically had absolute 
full access to anyone anyone's laboratory he wanted to work in. Right, nice. Great little internship for him. So he came back to the UK and I assume it was United at that point in time, not really sure. Yeah. This is a podcast about Sydney's <laughs> you're history. All right, you're all right, keep going. <laughs> and he completed a Master of Arts at Cambridge in 1818 and he began to consider what his first major scientific publication might be. And what would it be? It would be revising the various completed works of the genus Scarabaeus, or scarabs, obviously. Scarab beetle. Mm-hmm. And ironing out the many inconsistencies in that body of work. Because Good. what I hadn't really considered, but what was going on at this time was everyone's doing all this research in different parts of the world mm-hmm. concurrently. Right. And coming to different, like slightly different findings. Yeah. And so there's all these inconsistencies. So he's, he had decided that he was going to go through all the existing work and basically sort it out. A definitive guide to scarab beetles. Exactly. And he felt that he had something of an obligation to do this, given that his father possessed the world's largest collection (laughs) of scarabs. 1,800 specimens. Wow. (laughs) And he also came up around this time with his a significant addition to Linnaeus's taxonomy of, um, of all the things on Earth. In Paris, he'd been exposed to some different biological theories, including that of Chevalier de Lamarck. Yeah, yep. Do you know that guy? Yeah, Lamarck is like the kind of proto-Darwin, but slightly different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so William thought Lamarck and Linnaeus's works were good, but that they were artificial attempts to explain God's creation. <laughs> and he was going to find the one true taxonomy. Right. <laughs> which he thought he did, which was to categorize everything into groups of five. Why five? Because that was God's wish. Right. So the animal kingdom was given five classes, and each class, such as vertebrates, had five orders, and each order had five tribes, etc., etc. Right, okay. And so he laid out this work in his magnum opus, which he published in 1819. Yeah. And it was pretty well received. People bought People it. People like the fi- categories of five idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years later, so he's doing well, high-flying, has to bail his father out, gives him a loan of a few thousand pounds. Right, because he's spending all his money on beetles and he has no income. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. But just when he finally had to borrow money from his eldest son, uh, at age 58, Alexander finally received another job offer, which was to be... I, I bet this is where he gets sent to Sydney. <laughs> sent to Sydney to be colonial secretary. It sounds like exactly the kind of guy, you know. <laughs> this is washed up guy. He's got serious debt from his bug addiction. <laughs> We just need a post for him, somewhere where he can't do too much harm. <laughs> yeah, Ship well, him to the other side of the world. So there was obviously, the, the problem was that at that age, he's probably not coming back. Yeah. But also a good chance for him to find more bugs and expand oh, yeah. his collection. Loads of bugs. So as you're exactly right, he didn't wasn't really in a position to say no. So he said yes, but he did petition to have his son appointed colonial clerk to help him with his collecting. And also because, and I hadn't really thought about this either, if he died, he would leave his wives and daughters basically stranded in Sydney with no income. Right. So he wanted William Sharp to go over with him so that if he died, there was someone in charge of the place. Right. Okay. Um, and that was knocked back. So he went off with his wife, Eliza, and their six unmarried daughters, including Fanny. Yeah, wow. And they set sail for Sydney from Portsmouth in 1825. Fascinating. Okay. And so the eight sons have kind of just gone and done their own thing. Yeah, they seem to have been left in London. Right. And he took with him cuttings of grapevine and apple and boxes of rabbits to introduce to the new colony. Oh, (laughs) wonderful. He's the bloody (laughs) rabbit guy. guy. (laughs) Do you know how much effort we put into fences because of that guy? (laughs) The Linnaean Society generously offered their entire London attic space for his collection which he said no to and surprised everyone by taking almost the entirety of it with him. Oh, to Sydney. wow. Yeah. And where is it still in Sydney now? Uh, you're jumping ahead. We'll get to that. Yeah. They must have been really upset about that. I feel like that would not be the expected, the, the done thing with your extensive world beating collection of bugs. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, they offered, generously offered the attic space, but really, obviously, they just thought they were getting the score of the century. <laughs> right. Um, so they arrived safely, the family and all the specimens, on 1826 to Sydney Town, which had a population of 12,000 at the time. Yeah, it's probably more bugs than it is uh, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a lot of what we know about the family comes from Fanny's correspondence with her brother, William Sharp, who had actually been sent to Cuba for a job there. Okay. 
So it takes a long time for their letters to get to each other. But Fanny said she was didn't seem impressed with Sydney. She described it as, quote, a vile, nasty hole possessing nothing capable of gratifying either of our five senses. In short, it is detestable. All right. Less than impressed then. <laughs> and she didn't like the trees either. I presume she's talking about eucalypts here, which she describes as, quote, as ugly as you can imagine trees to be. Yeah, the, the British response to eucalypts is really interesting. They're just blown away by them. Like the, I know, There's lots of accounts of the this weird tree that the bark is always falling off, but the leaves stay on it the whole time. It must have seemed very strange. Yeah, I suppose that does, yeah, if you've never seen something like that. Yeah. But the townsfolk didn't think much of her or her sisters either, who were dismissed as short, square-built, and I suspect a little bow-legged. Oh, I wonder if that's like an inbreeding uh, accusation of the Ooh, time. Could be. I don't know, but who knows. Settling in Sydney, Alexander got uh, stuck into being a part of colonial society. He joined the Benevolent Society, the Sydney Auxiliary Bible Society, the Sydney Dispensary, the Australian Religious Tract Society, the Auxiliary Mission Society, the Agriculture and Horticultural Society, the Subscription Library and the Racing and Jockey Club. Oh, wow. Amongst that, the Sydney Dispensary, interestingly, is the um, charity that ran out of the Sydney Hospital, the North Wing that's now the Mint, that we discussed in the episode about the uh, the Rum Hospital. Oh, nice. I'm really glad I listed all those societies then. <laughs> the other ones I don't know anything about. <laughs> and on Sundays, he took his girls parading along Macquarie Street, which Fanny suspected uh, was cover for husband hunting for them. Mm-hmm. And he actually founded the very first colonial museum, which was in two rooms in the government offices. Okay. The Lady Darling became close friends with Fanny uh-huh. and actually put, gave her a position managing um, the industrial school for girls that the Lady Darling established. Yeah. Is that in Parramatta, possibly? No. That was the workhouse. For women. For convicts. Okay. Yeah, this was in um, Macquarie Street. Okay. So... Fanny actually hated the job, but felt that it was her duty to do it. And she was sick of, she didn't actually like children. And she just written that said she was so very, very, very sick of children by this point in time. (laughs) (laughs) When she wasn't managing that school, Lady Darling called upon her to entertain guests in Sydney, which is another job she found most dull. So I feel like it's a sort of a sad story about Fanny because she obviously had a, a strong interest in was good at natural history. Right. But she just had to instead, like, do lady jobs. Right, you know? right. A very intellectual mind, but purely mm. because of her gender, she had to, like, look after young children that she didn't want to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And be, a, you know, uh, run charities and do yeah. that sort of thing. Entertain guests. Exactly right. And Fanny did find something good to say about the colony. She described it as having the finest of all climates. Oh, well, that's nice. <laughs> after the previous quotes... In 1827, you're asking about the boys, two younger boys, George and James McClay, so younger brothers of Fanny's, arrived and both took to the natural sciences. Uh George spent a lot of his time collecting and became a a sort of a hobby taxidermist. And James went east to the Pacific Islands in search of curiosities, armed with beads to trade. Of course. But his expedition was plagued by plague and (laughs) a war in Tahiti. Oh, that's a shame. (laughs) And George would grow to be an explorer. He accompanied Sturt on his expedition to the mouth of the Murray uh-huh. and also was a politician and a member of the Linnaean Society on his own right and spent his later years yachting around the Mediterranean, funded by his uh, farming, his agricultural wealth that he acquired uh, in Australia. Yeah, how nice for him. Mm. Alexander was working long hours and being hounded by the press, given that he was sort of the part of his role as colonial secretary was being um, spokesman for the governor. Right. So that's a prominent role, colonial secretary, right? Yeah, it's like the so it's two I see. Right. And some of the hounding by the press apparently related to the fact that he had managed to acquire 20,000 acres of land for himself in just three <laughs> years in the role and had a monopoly on butter production. Uh, fairly legitimate hounding then i imagine <laughs> i love how that was just like part and parcel of being a like, prominent like uh <laughs> government role was like you just acres. acquire outrageous amounts of land for yourself now his most famous acquisition alistair and this is where you might find out you knew a little more about the mcclays than you thought mm-hmm. was 54 acres at elizabeth bay okay 
No, I don't, I don't think Nothing? I know anything okay. about it. I don't think so. Um, well, in time, he'd become very well known for the house he built there. Yeah, sounds... But for now, his first interest was the garden. Okay, okay, still... We'll, we'll see, we'll see what turns up. Um, so the family stayed in cramped quarters in Sydney whilst he borrowed vast sums of money to carefully set out a garden at Elizabeth Bay. Nice. Sounds like the kind of thing he would definitely do. <laughs> yeah. And other, unlike other gentlemen who tended to clear the land and plant exotics, his garden actually was famous for like working with the native biodiversity. Okay. And he actually prohibited the removal of a single eucalypt. Oh, they've come around. <laughs> come, yeah, they've maybe, come. Maybe that was Fanny. <laughs> Fanny's probably like just in the corner fuming. <laughs> maybe it was just to spite her. <laughs> Um, he also planted planted Sydney's first jacarandas. Oh, that okay. I did once read a snippet about jacarandas and I wanted to do an episode about jacarandas. Well, you still can because the main story about jacarandas is to do with uh, the person who contributed to them being all in Sydney streets is not him. And okay. that came much later. Okay. And that was a woman with some connection to South Africa, obviously. Okay. I can't remember who she was, but yeah. But this was the first jacaranda in Sydney. Yeah. And he also planted camphor laurel and prickly pear, which are both really iconic weeds oh, great. in Australia. So, mm. so far that's rabbits and, the, and those two. <laughs> yeah. And apparently his, the lawn of his garden alone cost 3,000 pounds. Wow. <laughs> that's the thing about lawns. That's why, yeah, I mean, historically that's why a suburban house needs to have a nice lawn. We're still trying to live up to that guy's rep. Yeah, my lawn doesn't cost £3,000. And the only reason I have it is because it was already here and they're quite hard to get rid of. <laughs> People online are always like, just let it grow out into like this beautiful native forest. And it's like, that's not what happens. Yeah. It just becomes really, really long grass. <laughs> yeah. It looks awful. Yes. And he's full of cat poo. <laughs> but you can't see the cat poo. No. Yes. And be a fire hazard. Anyway. <laughs> So, while this is going on, William Sharp, the eldest, he's working in Cuba yeah. as, the, as Britain's representative to the Commission for the Abolition of the Slave Trade. Mm-hmm. And when he's not working, he's exploring the forests of Havana, looking for samples. Um, and he was almost arrested for doing that because he looked like a homeless person. Oh, there you go. And uh, he retired from the civil service at the age of 43 and went back to be an elder statesman of natural sciences in Britain. Oh, very nice. And this was because he'd, uh, well, the Patriarch's uh, request that he get a role in Sydney was turned down. And so yeah, he never so he made it Yeah, went to Cuba that. instead. Yeah. Mm. Well, he hasn't yet. Oh. So, obviously, given Alexander's um, predilection, is that right? Sounds like a good word. Yeah. So we'll leave it in then. <laughs> Alexander's predilection for exuberant spending... They family ended up in quite dire financial situation. Yeah. And at this point in time, he's obviously, you know, a very well-respected member of colonial society. And he actually became the foundational president of the Australia Club. Okay. I think I've possibly heard of that. Well, you might have heard of it very recently because they, um, it's, it's based on Macquarie Street. And they put to vote, I think this year or last year, a motion to allow women to join the club. Oh, one of those kind of clubs. One of those kind of clubs. And more than 70% of the members voted against it. Yeah. <laughs> and some examples of members you might have heard of, John Howard, James Packer, George Pell, Malcolm Turnbull. Yeah, right. Wow. Mm. So it all started with Alexander McClay. Great. He's, look, he's, <laughs> he's got a great record so far. <laughs> and so at this point in time, he's building Elizabeth Bay House. Yeah. Which is his mansion, obviously costing him a fortune. And he also bought two Venetian gondolas that popped up for sale in Sydney. So, yeah, he's just, he's he's a gentleman. From from Venice? Someone else brought them. He bought them. Right. Yeah. And I mean, he wouldn't get in the dirty work of actually bringing Venetian (laughs) barges over, but nice. Wow. And then sadly, in 1836, Fanny died, aged 44, from a stomach complaint which I thought might tie into the fact that there wasn't a sewer yet. Oh, could be. Or she could have just been eating such rich and well delicious food. That... <laughs> right okay. I don't know. 
Well, who can say? But I imagine if you're living in a mansion out there, Elizabeth Bay, probably all right. No, they hadn't moved in yet. They were living in the city because it was still under construction, oh. costing them their, all their money. <laughs> in that case, maybe. Now, the eldest, William Sharp, he's enjoying his pension, swanning around the scientific clubs of London, where he meets Charles Darwin in 1837, who had just returned from his trip around the world. And the two of them had discussed the best way for Darwin to publish his discoveries. And at that point in time, interestingly, Darwin's taxonomological understanding actually was like based on Maclay's work. Oh, wow. The, the whole five categories, everything in fives thing. That was sort of, that was what he had been taught and that was how he saw the world. Right. Okay. So it was actually that significant. Yeah. It was a big deal. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I mean, it sounds, it, it's quite similar sounding to our system of, you know, moving down in um, more and more precise um, as you get drilled down into the groups and orders, I don't know them all, genus and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. Kingdom, it, uh, phylum. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, I guess, all that stayed the same. Right. So, yeah, he was well known, respected by Darwin. Uh, I mean, Darwin was like a sort of a, you know, a young upstart at this point in time. Right. Then uh, William decided to join the family. So he went off to Sydney as well. And he took his vast collection and two of his younger cousins, another William, which is confusing, and a guy called John with him. Okay, so there's quite a crew now. Now we've got a lot of Maclays in Sydney. <laughs> so in 1843, Alexander ran in the first parliamentary elections for a seat in the New South Wales Legislative Council. Okay, and cool. Yeah, so this is this is just at the same like the next year after Sydney, the city of Sydney has become uh, the first democratic body. They're like roughly right, the same okay. time. Yeah. So he he won and he was appointed the first Speaker of the House. Oh, there you go. But he was in very dire financial straits. By this stage, his, his original loan to William had been joined by 20 more loans from William. Wow. So he owed his eldest son £18,000 and the same amount again to others. Wow. <laughs> but he had a fine lawn. Yeah, which is probably why, now that I think about it, William went to Sydney. <laughs> just like, he took, what is going on down there? <laughs> yeah, he just took over control of the situation, sold his father's library, sold his father's furniture... And took over the mortgage on Elizabeth Bay House, which was completed by this point in time himself and subdivided parts of the estate. Okay. So really, this is kind of like one of those enormous manors that later get subdivided. But in this case, it actually never existed as a full manor where they were enjoying it for a few decades. It was immediately subdivided. No, just the grounds were subdivided. Right. So he had 50 something acres in Elizabeth Bay. They never got to just live in 50 acres of... No, they got rid of some of it pretty quickly. <laughs> pretty quickly. Yeah. Right. Uh, Alexander was furious. He died still furious at William and vowed that William <laughs> wouldn't get anything from his estate. But actually, William got all of it because he had, the mortgage was his was on the house. He probably had like all the paperwork saying that he was owed. <laughs> yeah. So he got it all. Right. So he settled into the house at Elizabeth Bay. Now, I'm surprised you don't know Elizabeth yeah, Bay so house. I, I've, I do know. I've, but to be honest, I don't. I don't even know if I've ever been there. I bet my 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 mom's gonna say like, yeah, of course you've been there, but I can't I can't remember being there. But I have read a lot about it, and I guess since we've been recording this, I haven't lived in Australia or I've been in lockdown slash had young children COVID situation. Mm, you so got I got your excuses. You've had a lot of excuses. Yeah, well, I haven't been there either, but it's one of oh, the well, Sydney Living Museums. Yeah, yeah. And but it's most famous because, and this is why I've heard of it. It's got the some of the best preserved um, Sydney cedar oh, okay. interior, which you're obsessed with. Yes, yeah, yeah, and I did. I have read about it in that connection. So that's that's built by Alexander. That was what he squandered all his money on. <laughs> well, that's... And so Williams moved into the house. Yeah, he's he's entertaining his friend naturalist John Gould, which is a name that would be familiar to any uh, any ornithologists out there. <laughs> Probably most of this episode would be familiar to them. <laughs> Probably not to but you. not to anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the two of them were, you know, having a nice cold one in the afternoon at Elizabeth Bay House. As you do. Enjoying what's the still 30-odd acres that they've got. Wonderful views, I believe. Definitely wonderful views. And they watched a brush turkey drown itself in a bucket of water after mistaking its reflection for a different brush turkey. <laughs> And they caught a dozen small rodents that they saw, preserving them in alcohol and writing them up and giving them a fancy Latin name Yeah, and publishing them, only to discover years later that it was just the common black rat, ratus, ratus. 
which Linnaeus had described over 100 years earlier. Wow, okay. I can't believe that these, this was recorded in history. <laughs> yeah, well, they're still around, those rats, actually. Yeah, but were the rats brought over by the um, First Fleet? No, no, the literal rats that he collected and preserved in alcohol is still around but yes common black rats are also abundant yeah i think they would have they would have come super early on one of the very earliest european expeditions right uh so william becomes a bit of a hermit at elizabeth bay house he stops collecting new specimens he stops making any significant (laughs) scientific contributions probably after the embarrassment of the rattus rattus And, yeah, well, it becomes embarrassing for him because around the same time, his quinarian system was formally renounced by the scientific community. Oh, no. And uh, when when Charles Darwin published his work, The Origin of Species, he actually specifically expressed the fear that he would suffer a fate like Maclay's. And <laughs> just become a washed-up old codger in Sydney. <laughs> yeah, with some ridiculous outdated theory while you're still alive. <laughs> Wow, that's kind of a harsh blow. And so William read Darwin's work, and he said that for William it was far easier to believe in the direct and constant government of the creation by God than that he should have created the world and then left it to manage itself. Right. Which is Darwin's theory in a few words. Right, yeah, yeah. Nevertheless, Darwin is an old friend, and I feel grateful for his work and hope it will make people attend to such matters. (laughs) Nice. Maybe it'll, you know, spruce up a bit of interest in the... <laughs> well, it did, so it's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Well, that's really interesting that, that I didn't know anything about the people behind Elizabeth House and much about that, Elizabeth Bay House. That's really kind of exciting that it's tied into the history of Darwinian theory and biology more generally, and I guess which is such a fundamental underpinning for the way we understand the world today. Yeah. No, just some aristocratic family who uh, built a mansion down near Potts Point. And collected specimens. So the next member of the Maclay family we come to is William John, who, similar name to the other William, but is actually um, the nephew. Uh, So he's a cousin of William Sharp, nephew of Alexander. He was brought over by William Sharp, obviously. He was probably loafing around London, and he thought, you need to come to the colonies and pull your britches up. Or be assigned enormous (laughs) amounts of land by us. Well, he was. Yeah. (laughs) So he was sent to the Murrumbidgee, where he was a squatter for 25 years, um, upon which he obviously amassed a fortune. He married the Susan, who was the daughter of the next colonial secretary after Alexander. He represented his region in Parliament. And then he returned to Sydney to uh, set himself up as an aristocrat. Great. It's pretty easy to pull yourself up by the britches when people give you enormous pieces of land. Yeah, yeah. So he took to helping his cousin, the older William, out with his collection and doing more trading. And they lived together at Elizabeth Bay House, which is a bit cute, I thought. Yeah. Collecting specimens. Cozy. (laughs) And um, so William Sharp is getting old and he told William John that once he died, William John could have his collection. But upon his death, he would need to give it to either the University of Cambridge or the University of Sydney, whichever he chose. Oh, here's the big moment. Here we go. (laughs) So, William John, okay, that's good. He continues the family tradition. He establishes the Entomological Society of New South Wales. Yeah. Because this is the original collection that at the time was quite scandalously taken away from London and against the wishes of the uh, Royal Society. This is still kind of knocking around in Elizabeth Bay House. Well, and it's been constantly added, added to, to by right. every like, person who's joined the family. They've spent most of their time and money just getting more specimens. Yeah. Well, the new one, the new kid, William, he's uh, yeah, started the Entomological Society. He's hanging out in the family mansion with his collection. He's reading journals. He's participating in Sydney Biological Society. Oh, they're all members of the board of the Australian Museum. Uh-huh. And apparently William John, at one point in, in, in his life, single-handedly uh, routed... Ben Hall's gang. Oh. During an attack near Goulburn. Wow. I wonder how he did that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't read anything more on it, but an interesting <laughs> aside, perhaps. Um, so, in 1873, he's now getting on, I think. Yeah, he must be. He's been around this whole story. No, no, this is. No, sorry. William Sharp's dead. Oh, gosh, they have such similar names. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't that many names to choose from back then. <laughs> So he's got he's got the collection off the older William and he's yeah. decided 
he can give it to one of two universities, right? Yeah, okay. And he decides to give it to the University of Sydney. Yeah. Possibly because he lives in Sydney or possibly because the Chancellor is his father-in-law. That would help. (laughs) Um, But he wanted to go one step further and actually set up a useful education tool rather than just dump this enormous collection of bugs on them. Yeah. So he approached the University Senate and he asked if he could donate the entire collection and also a trust fund to pay for the salary of a curator. (laughs) Why not? Why not? Also a trust fund. I like it. (laughs) And the university agreed. Funnily enough, they thought, yeah, that sounds like a good deal. Near end of the deal was they had to build a building, which they did. Okay. Which, um, do you know which building by any chance? I do. It's the Maclay building. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Uh, which one is that? It's, I don't think I've been in it, but it's um, between the quad at Sydney Uni, Camperdown Campus and Parramatta Road. So, sort of on Science Road. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's probably, I don't think I've been inside that one either. So, the university got stuck into building the building. And William hired George Masters, who was working at the Australian Museum, to be his curator. And the two of them basically got absolutely crazy expanding the collection. So they went like full on. The whole town knew that they were on the hunt for more specimens and they were paying fixed rates. Okay. Basically, he wanted to build the most comprehensive collection of Australia's natural history Mm -hmm. and then donate it. So as well as you know, getting people to just collect and bring them to him to buy. He also visited the five commercial taxidermists that were in Sydney at the time. Mm-hmm. And he even went to places like a high-class oyster bar to acquire <laughs> their shellfish. <laughs> okay. Man, if you were, I bet there were all kinds of schemes on the streets of Sydney. Too, like, just got to get <laughs> yeah, some well, bugs at, for this man and I can have some money. At one point, two fishermen arrived at Elizabeth Bay House, one with an enormous shark for Mr. McClay's collection and one with oysters for Mrs. McClay's dinner. (laughs) This is great. And what's interesting to me here is there was so much wildlife in and around Sydney at this point in time that William McClay and George Masters could just take a cab down to Botany Bay or go for a stroll on Bondi Beach and reliably find new specimens to describe. Wow. And he had traps set up on his Elizabeth Bay property to catch all these different marsupials that were in the garden. Yeah. Wow. And what I think is most cool, he would go to the Sydney fish markets and there would just be piles of fish laying on the ground that they'd caught and they just didn't know what they were. Wow. Like no one had ever done a kind of extensive scientific study of... No. So he would just buy them off the fishmonger and then take them back to his collection. (laughs) And kind of dissect them and figure out what was going on. Yeah, and that was in the 1870s wow. in Sydney. And so his idea was like, wait a minute, if this is happening in Port Jackson, which is like, right. you know, we've got sewer going out into it. People have been fishing here for ages. Yeah. He's like, what on earth is happening in other like bodies of water? Right. So he decides to head off on an expedition. He buys himself a steamer. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he decides not to rerun for a parliament because like everyone else in the family, he's a parliamentarian. He's got a steamer now. He's got other things to do. (laughs) And he sets forth on what would be Australia's first international scientific expedition, which went to New Guinea. Oh, I thought you were thinking, I thought he was just going to go to other parts of Australia, but he's so inspired that he decides to go on a small tour of the Pacific. Yeah. So he goes up the coast all the way to New Guinea. He stops off at Cape York he collects specimens. He uh, trades with the people of Cape York and New Guinea to get heaps more specimens. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, I think someone had told the public, or probably the media, someone <laughs> had told the public that his expedition was planning on claiming New Guinea for New South Wales. Okay. But it didn't seem like he had any interest in that and was literally only going to get specimens. Right. And he, when he got back, the media like sort of asked him about occupying New Guinea And he said that it would be a bad idea because anyone who tried to occupy it would be violently opposed, which went down poorly with the public. And the SMH wrote that, quote, there has been an impression that both science and commerce have much to gain and nothing to lose by an immediate occupation of New Guinea. Oh, wow. And if anyone ought to have New Guinea, we ought. (laughs) (laughs) Which is sort of a strange, um, like a strange sort of thing to get whipped up when he was just going to like trade for specimens, specimens basically yeah so he gets back and they're all kind of like right so did you people did you are angry at him yeah <laughs> for not wow and i think i probably got even more angry eight years later when queensland claims new guinea i was gonna say i've briefly read once that queensland for a short time claimed new guinea 
Yeah, and then Britain said that overturned that and said Queensland couldn't claim it, and then five years later claimed it for themselves. Classic. <laughs> um, so from that trip to New Guinea, Maclay published 38 papers. So unlike the previous members of his family, he actually did write books and, and sort of create new scientific understanding. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a two-volume book just about the fish he picked up at the fish market, oh. which was over 1,500 species. I, what? Just at the Sydney fish market? Yeah, apparently. That's outrageous. I, I would love to read that book. That's another episode. I, I don't know anything about the fish that live around Sydney um, harbour or beaches, and I would like to know more about that. And I imagine that would be the way to do it, that very extensive book. <laughs> two volumes. Maybe I don't want to read that much about fish. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be fairly tedious. Although he did write about them in economic terms as well. It wasn't just like a scientific Ooh. book. It was sort of like, this fish is, you know, particularly delicious or whatever. Right. Um, so he had, a, he had to have a museum built on the grounds of Elizabeth Bay House to fit all his specimens. And because it was another 10 years or so in 1888 when the university uh, upheld their end of the bargain and finished the Maclay building, and then him and Masters spent two years moving that collection to Camperdown, and he cut a £6,000 check for the uni to pay Masters' salary for the next 20 years. Wow. This is just a family of great check cutting. They have a lot (laughs) of money to throw around. It's an endless supply of money, it seems. So you mentioned to me when we were wandering around the Botanic Gardens about the Garden Palace that burnt down. Yes, yeah. Do you know anything about that? Uh, So it was for a World's Fair or some kind of fair, I think. Um, You know how those kind of things were big in the day. And I Mm -hmm. believe that it was a big glass kind of palace thing. Um, And it contained, uh, the the thing that I do know about it is that it contained a huge number of um, Aboriginal artifacts, basically like the entirety of the collection that had been made to that point in Sydney. And it all burnt down, which is one of the major reasons why we also know so little about the Indigenous people of the Sydney area at the time of contact and post-contact, because because all these things were burnt. Yeah, so Maclay actually hadn't given anything from their collection to the... It was the Sydney's 1879 International Exhibition, it was called. Okay, International Exhibition. But as you mentioned, a huge proportion of the Australian Museum's collection was there and also a lot of other private collections. Okay. So because of that, he insisted as part of the agreement that the university fireproof the building. (laughs) Right, okay. Which seems like a good idea. Yeah, 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 definitely. No, I mean, it's a catastrophe that that happened with the... uh... I, I feel, what was it mm. called? The the I don't know if it was called the Crystal Palace or the I don't know Garden Palace. The Garden Palace. Okay. Yeah. So in 1891, the museum at Sydney Uni opened, which was Maclay's collection of over a hundred thousand specimens, not including all the drawers of insects, and also the collection of a a Russian natural scientist. Oh yes, I've heard about him. He had a, a research center towards Watson's Bay. Um, I can't remember yeah. the exact beach. Yep. Yeah, it's also yeah a heritage site. I think. Yeah, it's run by. It's managed by the one of these trusts. Maybe it's the Harbour Trust. I think it's the Harbour Trust. I think it is managed by the Harbour Trust. So his name is Nikolai Mikloho Maclay, no relation, and his collection included fifty human skulls, a child's skeleton, and five human tongues, which were obviously all just considered to be like normal parts of a natural history collection at the time. Huh. And he had spent his career living among people of New Guinea. Um, and interestingly, he was a well-respected scientist, but in his sort of viewpoint from his study was opposing a fairly widely held view of the day that white Europeans were like actually, you know, I don't know if it was a different species people thought, but were fundamentally in some way different. And his view from his studies was that that was not the case and that people everywhere were not like taxonomically taxonom taxonomically taxonom (laughs) thank you people were not taxonomically different from each other seems obvious now but you know yes i've read that too that he actually um was quite outspoken in his criticism of australia's treatment of indigenous australians um and the yeah the kind of assumption that they were like second class human beings in a way which is how the british colonial government and kind of society at large had been had treated aboriginal people 
Yeah. And he was an outspoken opponent of slavery in general and blackbirding in particular, relevant to the Australian context, especially because it affected the people of New Guinea where he lived for decades. Yeah, and uh, he was friends with Leo Tolstoy, who at his funeral, I suppose, said, quote, you were the first to demonstrate beyond question by your experience that man is man everywhere. That is, a kind, sociable being with whom communication can and should be established through kindness and truth, not guns and spirits. Oh, wow. Did you say that was Tol- Tolstoy speaking at his funeral? Yeah, I think it was Tolstoy. And I'm not sure where that was said. Wow, there you go. Con- specific context. That's a very nice yeah. quote. Hmm, that's what I thought. So, a bit of an aside, he's not related to the family, even though he's got a double barrel surname that includes their name. Um, but he but is a biologist. His collection was united with the Maclay collection okay. in the new museum at Sydney Uni because he had just died. So it's quite a collection then. Yeah, staggering. Yeah. Staggering collection. Without doubt, the best collection in Australia. And to this point in time, it was seen as the best collection that had ever anywhere in the world been given to a university. Oh, wow. Because mm. I feel like it's not particularly hyped now. I haven't really heard of it that much. Well, this story sort of takes a bit of a turn for the worse here. Okay. Shortly after it opens, uh, William John Maclay dies. He's sort of the last Maclay in this natural history lineage. The Elizabeth Bay State has been cut down. It's just three acres by this point in time. And he dies sort of being seen as a bit of a relic from, a, from another age. He sounds like a bit of a relic from another age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just happy to co- catalogue his... Um, I think Darwin described it as catalogue concrete fact rather than posit why. Right, yeah. A gentleman collector. Exactly right. So George Masters, who's his appointed curator, continues to be the curator until he dies, at which point funding for the maintenance of the collection just absolutely drops off. Uh People lose interest. Hardly anyone goes to visit it. Okay. Maybe only a dozen people a month by the 1910s. Right. So it's this huge collection just sitting there, but not worthwhile. Just gathering dust, yeah. And there's some sort of uh, robberies happening, some of which were professionally executed, but also others were just done by students who would distract the old curator and then their mate would steal some specimens. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) So, you know, universities growing, collections decaying. They decide what they're going to do is... It's a beautiful building. It was um, it's like a two-story building with a big gallery. And so you could stand up in the gallery and look down upon the whole collection. Oh, wow. And the uni kind of thinks, oh, well, this is a bit of a waste. We'll close that off so it's two floors and close in the roof space. Then we'll get all the collection and put it in the roof space. And then we'll turn this into an exam hall. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> So technically, they still uh, they're looking after the collection, but in such a way that they can cram it into a corner and not have to do anything with it anymore, and use the use the space as a building. Yeah, uh, and it stays more or less that way. It gets shuffled around campus, but it's sort of neglected until a couple of new curators come to it in the nineteen in nineteen sixty. Okay, so a long time then. Yeah, it's basically the collection has, apart from being shuffled around, has been like untouched since Masters and Maclay. What's that? sort of 80 years before. Wow. But in counting, in going through it all, they find out that the reptile collection, which was known to have been 10,000 specimens, there's only 2,000 they can find. So it's been hammered. (laughs) Those students really had a ball. (laughs) Yeah. Just rocking around with crocodiles. Masters didn't have a a sort of standardised cataloguing system. And since he was long dead, basically everything had to be sorted and reclassified. Uh Uh-huh. So it was, yeah, at, that, at the 60s, they went back through the whole thing and found all this stuff that people had totally forgotten that was there, a lot of which actually related to, like, specific significant moments in European natural history. So they had, like, a specimen that Linnaeus described, like the actual specimen he described, or a specimen from Darwin's journey on the Beagle. Wow, okay. And a specimen from Cook's second expedition. So there's all this, like, really iconic kind of stuff in there. Right. But it's just been forgotten about. Huh, cool. And is that is that stuff still at Sydney Uni? Yes. So it was estimated that the collection was worth £25,000 at the beginning of the 20th century. And at, at the beginning of the 21st century, its value was estimated at $42 million. Wow, okay. So despite the fact it got a bit hammered, it was a kind of unorganized mishmash that once they sort of threw it and figured out what it was they had there, some of those 
that you mentioned, those are just kind of priceless objects. Yeah. So the museum was open, and I presume when we were at Sydney Uni, you could just go in there, but I never did. Yeah. Uh, I went into the Nicholson Museum, which was yes, the sort I, of ancient history one, which yeah. was more interesting to me. Yeah. But I never went into the biology one. No, I didn't either. I went, and the Nicholson one was more obvious as well because it was right there when you try to go into the quad. Yeah. So in 2020, the uni opened a new museum, which is called the Chachuk Wing Museum, which is actually, I looked at it on Google Maps. It's on what was lawn between Fisher Library and the quad. What? Not the front lawn, but that sort of side lawn. So if you were at Fisher Library looking towards Parramatta Road, there is yeah. now a huge museum in your way. What? How did they do that without me noticing? <laughs> That's what I thought. I, looked, I was like, I didn't even know that it was even going to happen. And now it's finished and open. So that new museum houses the university's Nicholson collection, art collections, and the Maclay collection in one new building. Oh, with nice. With free entry. Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, that I will have to go there. A bit more accessible now. Yeah. Because the Nicholson Museum was only open like a couple of days a week and it was it was a fairly small space, but it was really nice. I liked it being It wasn't in the orientated there. around the user experience, I wouldn't say. Yeah. But I liked it too. I did yeah. like it, but this sounds different. This sounds like you can go any day of the week, anytime. It's a like a proper museum, fairly sizable. You can look at all these different collections. Yeah, and it's named for Chachak Wing, who's an Australian-Chinese property developer, billionaire, and seems to be a somewhat dubious fellow. He's been investigated by the uh, by ASIO and the FBI. Oh, well. He created a Chinese-language newspaper in Australia that promotes this um, Chinese Communist Party worldview. Okay. And he donates about a million bucks a year to the two major Australian political parties. Very nice. And also, presumably, to this uh, museum fund. $15 million he dropped into that. Wow. Mm-hmm. There you go. I mean, he's kind of, he's continuing the Maclay legacy, really. Yeah, I think so, because the collection was put together by these um, Scottish squatters who basically came over and built this enormous collection. They gave it to an Australian university who just let it absolutely rot. And now another foreign-born resident of Australia has created a new infrastructure for this collection to be looked after. So, yeah, there's definitely some sort of continuity there. Yeah, definitely. Big spending people with close ties to government. Yeah. Yep. That's that's great though. That I'm really glad that um that that building exists now because I'm looking forward to going there. Um, I know because even the the stuff in the Nicholson Museum is pretty exceptional. It's really exciting to see, and that's cool that anyone can see it and it's in such a prominent part at Sydney Uni. Yeah. So I'm definitely keen to go check it out too soon at some point. Yeah. Post COVID. Mm-hmm. So that's where the collection ended up. Elizabeth Bay House was sold in 1927. Did it get split up? Like the actual building gets split up into lots of different like small apartments. I think some of those old big manors that they ended up becoming like kind of housing for artists and stuff like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the grounds were fully subdivided. So it's literally sits alone on a block completely surrounded by streets now. Like it has it has no more garden than a terrace house. Uh-huh. And all the rest is surrounded by apartments. And it was turned into apartments Yeah, in the 50s, I think. Yes, okay. After being empty for a while. And then more recently, I think in the, I don't know exactly when, but at some point between then and now, it was um, quite early on, I think maybe in the 60s, it was uh, listed for conservation and is now, yeah, managed by the Sydney Living Museums who manage a bunch of important buildings around the place. Cool. Well, I have to go there too. I'm somewhat embarrassed that I know so little about it and had never been there. But we'll make yeah, that I had a whole let Alistair take over once we get to the bit about Elizabeth <laughs> Bay House. I can just imagine that being in your notes and your disappointment when I was just going to blankly stare at yeah, you. Yeah. So that's that's the Macla- that's the story of the Maclays. I know it was quite dense. <laughs> yeah, I got lost in the names at the start, but I got the general vibe. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. I find it amazing that I know so little to nothing about this, but these people at the time were really big spending, prominent kind of society people and fairly well, and obviously well-known within the um, kind of budding biology sphere since they're mentioned in all of these famous books. Yeah, there were like three generations of them apart from being natural historians and and being close personal friends with all the like really well-known sort of best minds of their day type thing were all also politicians. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that's so much stuff. Yeah, and it's it's just, it's amazing that 
that can that you could be so prominent at the time and then be fairly unknown now but also i guess it they didn't necessarily make any one intellectual contribution that was significant enough to get into a textbook because they were just he was kind of fairly off the mark with that system of fives for the animals um and plants yeah it was in 20 years that was sort of um no longer considered to be particularly useful Interestingly, they have over 100 species named after them. Wow. Three or four guys, 100 species. They're all called Maclay this, Maclay that. But yeah, different ones, different species for different which Maclay it was. But yeah, over 100. So I think if you're a biologist, you know these people. Yeah, for sure. Not just that one uh, swallowtail uh, butterfly then. No, that was just the first of many. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure that uh, even some of our friends who studied biology would know a lot more about the Maclays than we do. Yeah, and maybe have even been to the collection. Maybe. But when it was somewhere in University of Sydney, as it shuffled around. <laughs> when it was just a dusty, unloved. <laughs> yeah, so um, the main, well, the only source pretty much I used for this story was a book called Museum. Uh-huh. Um, and it's a it's kind of a big coffee table book. It's written by two people there's a an essay in it which is kind of where all the information came from and that's written by ashley hay the rest of it is full of photographs of the collection nice by robin stacy and that was they put that together in 2006 i think okay and it was robin stacy in the process of going through the collection to take photographs found those 10 rats preserved in um alcohol that that one of the Maclays had enthusiastically caught thinking it was a new species. And the actual the little tag on the jar says the new species he made up for them. And then at some point in the intervening years, someone has written Rattus Rattus. Crossed it out. Like underneath it. Yeah. That's wonderful. I was going to, that was a hilarious story. And I was going to ask why they've been kept, but I guess it took long enough for them to realize they were wrong that at that point they'd been stored away in the collection and no one got no one threw them in the bin yeah it's weird that they made the move to the university (laughs) (laughs) i send them off that's great (laughs) a testament to the vastness of the universe of the collection yeah it's just in a box in an enormous i just lost those 10 pickled rats (laughs) just shove them in a corner and in looking into Elizabeth Bay House, I found out that Jessica Malboy and Jay Sean recorded a video clip for What Happened to Us oh. in Elizabeth Bay House in 2010. So if you want to kind of get a feel for what Elizabeth Bay House looks like without going there, that's the way. it's not a bad way to spend four minutes. I will do that right now after this recording. <laughs> yeah, she's rocking a Blackberry because it's 2010, which is kind of funny as well. Yeah. So that's the story of the Maclays. A colonial Sydney dynasty that you knew nothing about. Yeah, well, Jed, that was fascinating. I now have a lot of enthusiasm to see uh, a number of things around Sydney relating to the Maclays. I'm looking forward to going to Elizabeth Bay House sometime soon. And then also to this brand new museum um, on the campus of University of Sydney. Excellent. I'll join you on both. Sounds like a plan. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for yeah this really well-researched and exciting episode. I'm uh, quite sad that this is the last episode of this second season now. We're 16 stories deep into the history of Sydney. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a lot of stories. <laughs> Feels like a lot of stories to it me. It does, yeah. I feel like after eight, I felt like, yeah, okay, we've done a little bit. But after 16 seems like a lot more. Um, but the, <laughs> I think we <laughs> approximately double. <laughs> mm. um, I think we have a lot more stories up our sleeve. I definitely have a lot of notes of things to look up later (laughs) yeah well i think it's safe to say that we'll be back in 2022 for another eight episodes yeah all righty well thanks for listening everyone i hope you enjoyed this episode and also this season of stories from sydney as much as we enjoyed making it if there's anything you want to share with us about uh, your thoughts and feelings about the the show uh, please get in touch we always love to hear from people and of course, please continue to share our podcast with your friends and family and any, uh, anyone that you think might enjoy hearing us ramble on about some of Sydney's more obscure historical people and places. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, um, Stories from Sydney, or you can also find us on Instagram. And uh, if you have any suggestions for either Jed or for me about a 
potential podcast topic, please send them to storiesfromsydney at gmail.com, uh, indicating in the title of the email who the suggestion is for, uh, so that we can keep it a secret from each other. And if you have the time and inclination, we would love it if you could leave a review on whichever podcast platform you listen to these episodes so that more people can find out about Stories from Sydney. We'll see you next time for our next Story from Sydney. Do-do-do.